Daniel chapter 12, our passage, we've skipped ahead to the very final uh, chapter of the book of Daniel. Last week we read in chapter 9 of his great prayer of confession of sin. And today we fast forwarded to 12. The in-between chapters in chapters 10 and 11 are, um, and you can read them later today, they're very difficult to comprehend extremely detailed vision of the events that would ensue the empire which would follow the Persian empire, the Greek empire, and all of the, not all of, but many of the battles and the political intrigue which came uh, succeeding the, the death of Alexander the Great. It speaks about two figures, a king of the north and a king of the south, who we think represents the Seleucid kingdom in the south and the uh, Ptolemaic kingdom in the north. There's great warring powers going on for control of the Greek Empire. And Jerusalem is kind of stuck on the 50-yard line. You've got the south and the north, and she's sucked into the vortex of the war and is under, ends up being under Seleucid reign. It also talks to us or unveils for us an exceptionally cruel figure who we've read about already in the book of Daniel, a man who fanatically persecutes the Jewish people, one Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, as he called himself, God manifest in the flesh, who in 167 BC came into the city of Jerusalem, sacked it, killed tens of thousands of Jews, and ended up sacrificing a pig to Zeus on the altar in the temple. Importantly, in chapter 11, and then we'll read about it, the same word here in chapter 12, or same phrase, that event, that sacrilege, that historical sacrilege was called the abomination that causes desolation. And if that, that language sounds familiar, it's because Jesus uses the identical language in Matthew chapter 24 as he speaks, we think, of a, another historical sacrilege in AD 70 when the Romans come and they uh, sack the city of Jerusalem again, and they set up Roman idols and Roman uh, battle standards within uh, the temple's uh, uh, most holy place. So how do you make sense of all of these events that uh, are, they seem to be when they're written in the uh, Bible prophecy all combined together, and yet they are actually events that are spaced out over a period of time. And I've used the example before, when you look up at Bogus Basin, depending on the light of day, depending on the time of day, it can be difficult to know that Schaefer Butte is, is uh, you know, a distance from the foothills right in front of it. I mean, when you look up there, sometimes they look, they, they seem identical. The, the near, sorry, the near and the far have converged into one. And that's kind of how Bible prophecies work, where you have events that could be separated over a very large period of time being smashed together so it looks like they happen instantaneously. I say that because here in chapter 12, I think what we are, what we're reading is the end of human history. The vision is skipped past the Greeks and past the Romans into the end of human history and the return of Jesus Christ. And it might be warning us that there will be an intense persecution of God's people immediately prior to Jesus' return. Now that's kind of debated in Christian circles, but it's a distinct possibility we read about in verse 1. 
At that time, Michael, whom we believe, believe to be the archangel Michael, here he is described as a prince. Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of death will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Verse 5. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood before me two others, we think two other angels, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the rivers, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. <laughs> Us too. <laughs> so I asked, My Lord, what will be the outcome? Or what will the outcome of, of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, as much as we love your word not all parts of your word are equally understandable and intelligible to us. Some parts are more difficult than others. Father, this is one of those parts. And that is why we especially ask for the help of your Holy Spirit to come and uh, um, interpret this passage for us and to speak an encouragement that would build us up in our most holy faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask this. Amen. So what do you think? Will there come a great tribulation at the end of human history? This event goes by various names in the Bible. It's sometimes called the great apostasy, the final rebellion. Here in verse 7, it's spoken of as the time when the power of the holy people has been broken, snapped in two. And it seems to be what Jesus is speaking about in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, where we read, For then there will be a time of great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. 
You, he's speaking of his disciples, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Well, it's kind of hard. I think it's very hard to imagine a great tribulation happening in our lifetime. Some kind of social and cosmic cataclysm of, of that order and scale of magnitude. magnitude. I have a hard time imagining that. But at the same time, I also have a hard time imagining that, you know, it was only 73 years ago that World War II happened. I mean, 73 years. History can pivot. She can change so rapidly. And, then, and with the presence of weapons of mass destruction, I guess maybe it isn't all that hard to imagine something crazy happening in our lifetimes. I don't know. I don't know if, we, we, if there will be a great tribulation, if we will face an intense persecution of this order of magnitude, or whether we will, as most Christians have through their lives, be subject to the standard difficulties of the world, the flesh, and the devil that are always chipping at us every day. Um, Paul himself said that it was only through many trials and hardships we will enter the kingdom of God, that storms will always threaten to capsize our little boat of faith, that we will be always tempted to turn back and quit. Uh, I know that for sure that's what we have in store for us. So how does this cryptic, very cryptic part of God's word help us to persevere to the end? That's what I want to answer with uh, two points. First, the message about resurrection. Daniel 12 provides the clearest statement of the resurrection found in, in the Old Testament. Now, there have been plenty of hints throughout the Old Testament that there will be a resurrection from the dead, but never something as unambiguous as is written in verse 2. Look there with me again. Verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. What does this mean? At the end of time, everyone will experience a resurrection. This is what theologians refer to as the general resurrection, where everyone who is dead comes alive again, and everyone appears before, their, before God to have their lives examined. Every word that we have spoken, every thought we have had, every action we have done, every action we have left undone, everyone will be resurrected to be evaluated by God Almighty. Some will arise, according to Daniel, and their sentence will, will be, what, it, what terrifying words, everlasting shame and contempt. Everlasting unending indignity, an indignity that, that never ceases or is mitigated. Um, and God help us if we fail to warn our friends and loved ones of this reality. I mean, if, you, if you're on the Titanic and you know the whole of the Titanic has been breached and you never open your mouth, you never raise your voice, God forbid that you face him after holding your tongue um, and never saying anything. 
And we must have the courage and we must have the loving wisdom to speak words of reality. The reality that everybody is going to face God. Terrible words. Everlasting contempt. What will be the reward of the righteous though? Verse 3. Such a contrast. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You know when you get up in the morning and you, um, you're up before dawn. You're looking to the east. Oftentimes when we are, get up for our morning prayer on Wednesday morning, I'm driving to the east. And there, what, what do I see up in the eastern sky at about 5.30, 5.45 in the morning? I see the morning star. I see Venus. The promise of God is that you and I will not just admire the morning star. We shall be clothed in her. <laughs> the righteous, those who are righteous by the mercies of God through Jesus Christ, will put on the splendor of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Like, if we could just get down here, oh, it's bright. <laughs> we will put, put on that splendor. And there's actually a passage in the New Testament which gives us a clue how this will come to pass. It is found, if you can write this down, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we do not know what we will be like. That's John saying, we don't know exactly what the glorified, our glorified selves are going to be like. But what but we do know, he goes on, we know is that we will be like him. For we shall see him as he is. John is saying, friends, listen, John is saying this experience of seeing Christ face to face at the end of time is so powerful that the moment we see him, we will be transformed into his likeness. Then all of the beauty and the glory and the love and the splendor and the majesty of the Son, when we see him as he is, we will be like him. The radiant face of the Son of God shining upon us will make us shine like stars in the sky. Amen? It's again, the, the Bible's silly language. It, it's just so silly to think. I mean, look at us. Isn't it so silly to think about us shining like the stars? There's a place where, okay, somebody want to look there for me and help me? Um, in Philippians, Paul says, uh, he's talking to the church there, and oh, I should have written it down, but it was, he says that, and you shall shine like stars in the universe, he says of them. There's another verse in Philippians I think is important for us and with regard to Daniel 12, and that is Philippians 3.13. Many people, many Christians have adopted Philippians 3.13 as their life verse. Forgetting what is behind and pressing on, straining forward to what is ahead. I, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. I didn't say that very well. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Forgetting what is behind, forgetting all that you've done and all that you have left undone, like a sprinter, when a sprinter's headed down the, the track, and he's, I mean, he's not thinking about how fast he got out of the blocks or how well he did his first 10 meters. He is straining every fiber of his being in order to, 
to lean forward and make sure that that tape breaks across his chest. And Paul says that is the prize. The prize is you and me shining like stars because the face of Christ has transformed us into his likeness. Number two, so when will this take place? (laughs) When will all of this happen? It's significant to me how God answers that question here in um, Daniel 12. Verse 6, one of the angels asked aloud, How long will it be before these astonishing things were fulfilled? The other angel replies, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. That it, time, times, how does that work? Are those times, hours, or days, or months, or years, or centuries, or verse 11? From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days, which is how many years? Three and a half years. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of 1,335 days, which is, I think, 45 days later than that. So it's clear as crystal, obviously, when this is going to happen. Um, I grew up in a church that spent a lot of time on predicting the time, the, the date of Christ's return. And maybe you were like that too. You were in a place where they were really into prophecy timelines and books that predicted current events, how current events fit into biblical prophecies. I remember back in the 80s reading a book. Uh, did anybody read this one? Armageddon, Oil, and the Middle East Crisis back then. I mean, that was, that was the stuff that was on the top seller list in, in Christian books and Christian bookstores. Don't get me wrong. I love, I absolutely love the spiritual heritage that was passed on to me. I'm a little queasy with the view of the end times that I got. We thought that the world was going to get worse and worse until the Antichrist would arise. 666, the mark of the beast, would be implanted into every one of us through some microchip. Um, But if things were getting bad in the newspaper, well, that's kind of good because that just is a sign Jesus is going to come back soon. He would come secretly He would rapture all of us Christians out of the world. We wouldn't have to pass through all seven years of the Great Tribulation. We would only have to pass through 1,290 days of it, three and a half years. I guess with time, I've come to really question the wisdom of trying to predict the return of Jesus Christ. Christians have a very bad track record in doing so. Did you know, piece of trivia, the very first prediction of Christ's return was made by a substantial theologian, Hippolytus of Rome in the third century, who, if I'm not mistaken, was the disciple of Irenaeus of Leon, who was the greatest church historian of of the uh, early church. And Hippolytus, he believed that the world began in 5,500 B.C., And using the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant as a guide, was able to conclude that Jesus would return in 6,000 years, so he would come back in the year 500 AD. And ever since, since, uh, we've been missing the mark. We missed the mark especially in 1948. Do you remember what happened in 1948? Israel was recreated as a nation state. 
Do you remember the voices that spoke back in 1948 among, in Christian circles? Everybody was saying, well, that this must mean, now that we have Israel back, it must mean that Jesus is coming the next 30 to 40 years. Those voices got even louder in 1967 during the Six-Day War when Israel took back the old city of Jerusalem. I mean, what clearer sign did you need than Jesus is coming back any day now? All that was left was a little catch. This thing we call the Dome of the Rock. <laughs> the Islamic mosque that sits today on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. That would have to be moved away. Destroyed, relocated in order to rebuild the temple so that the abomination that causes desolation, as predicted here in Daniel 12, would once again be reconstructed in the temple. And so that's one of the reasons why you had a lot of Christians in the 90s spending a lot of money to try and help rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. You know, when I look at Daniel here, I don't think God gave him a clear timeline. At least not a clear timeline that he could understand. I read six different commentaries. I didn't find anybody all that helpful on 1,334 days, 35 days. It's like, we, we don't really know. We don't know. Verse 9, he says, Daniel, the words are rolled up and sealed until the end of time. So what should you do, Daniel? Now that you have all of this great Bible conference Bible prophecy conference material. What should you do? Look at it in verse 9. Go your way. Go your way. Go back to your job. Go back to your government job. Go back and work with the Persians. Daniel never made it back to Jerusalem with the exiles. He never returned. He never got to see the very thing that he was longing for. Uh, anybody who tells you that Christians always get what they ask for in prayer, <laughs> Daniel didn't get to return. God said, go back and be faithful in your job, your day job, because I'll take care of the end. It's an extremely fitting way to conclude the book of Daniel. I've tried to say, as we've gone through the series, how Daniel models for us salt and light engagement in secular society. You know, Daniel was the one who said yes to a Babylonian education, yes to a Babylonian name and enculturation, yes to service in a corrupt Babylonian government, but no in critical moments, like I will not bow down and serve your idols. No, I will not do this. I will not do that. Um, and Daniel was at the right place at the right time to save God's people because he said yes and he said no in the proper balance. If you want to get that, you can listen to an earlier sermon. So it's, it seems fitting to me that God would end all of this great prophecy with a very simple word. Love your neighbor in your job and carry on. Don't speculate. Let me conclude with this. The C.S. Lewis classic, his classic book, The Great Divorce, many of you have read it. It's the story of how some tourists from hell pay a weekend visit to heaven. They're shocked when they arrive because heaven is so solid. And they are, in fact, ghosts by comparison, human-shaped stains on the air. If you recall, something as tender as a blade of grass in heaven 
pierces their ghostly feet, almost like Han Christian Andersen's a mermaid. Just heaven's grass pierces their faith because their feet, because heaven is so solid and they are so ephemeral. But one point in the story, and most of the story is ghost figures, ghost tourists talking to the residents of heaven. And at one point, we have a dialogue between a, uh, a man and his former business partner, who is now a resident of heaven. But he was, during his time on earth, convicted of murder. He ended up being convicted of murder and sentenced for his crime. This is the very first time the man from hell and the man from heaven uh, have met. And the man from heaven is the guy who, who committed murder, and the man from hell is a fine, upstanding, law-abiding citizen. Says the ghost to the solid man, <clears throat> I can't believe it. You? Here? Well, I'll be damned. <laughs> chuckle, chuckle. What about poor Jack? The solid man said in reply, Oh, he is here. You will meet him soon if you stay. But you murdered him. <sighs> yeah, I did. But it's all right now. All right for you, you mean. But what about that poor chap himself lying cold and dead on the floor? The solid man replied, but he isn't. I've told you, you will meet him soon. He is here. He has sent you his love. What I'd like to understand is what you're doing here is pleased as punch you a bloody murderer while I've been walking the streets down there living in a place like a pigsty all these years. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? No, not as you mean. I do not Look at myself. I have given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. That was what did it for me. And that was how everything began. Brothers and sisters, will you or I ever face a test strong enough to destroy our faith? Will we be prepared to stand through a great tribulation or even to stand through the everyday attacks that the world, the flesh, and the devil bring the Christian life begins by looking away from yourself to Christ. And the Christian life continues by looking away from yourself to Christ. And the Christian life ends with the visio dei, the beatific vision, with Christ looking back at you. Don't look at yourself. Look at his, towards his shining face. 1 Corinthians 2.9 I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. If you can keep that as your focus, it'll be enough no matter what the storms you travel through. Amen.